Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You know what um, you know what choreography is? Of course you do. The last week of Jesus' life on this planet, it would not be a stretch to say that every event, every word, every action, every glance, everything was perfectly choreographed, like it was planned, and it was. We, we call this week, his last week, Holy Week, and we observe Holy Week, but it was a jam-packed week. I mean, some of the most famous things that you know from God's Word happened in that last few days after he came into town, like I described to the kids. There was the cursing of the fig tree. There, there was the, the case of the dirty temple, the polluted temple, polluted by consumerism and materialism and greed. And, and Jesus moves in, and he has to clean that mess up. And he cleans that mess up in dramatic fashion. He cleans the temple up. And then there's a series of riddles that he comes up with when his authority is questioned by some hostile critics. He tosses out riddles to them that they cannot solve. There's one of his most chilling stories that he tells that last week as well about the fate of those who oppose him. It's a scary story. There's a story of the widow's mite. Remember that? The lady with just two little teeny tiny coins. But she gives more than people that are dumping in great fortunes. There's the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery, committing the act. They catch her. And then they drag her out and they throw her in the street before Jesus. What are you, what are you going to do with this one, Jesus? That happens in that jam-packed, choreographed last week. There, there's, the, there's the attacks on Jesus' character, and, and he comes back with some stinging things. He talks about giving to Caesar, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but on the other hand, make dead level sure that you give to God what belongs to God. He talks about, he's challenged, and he talks about the greatest commandment what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And just for good measure, he throws in the second greatest commandment. There's Jesus coming up with an unanswerable question. Again, that last week. There's, there's, there's the, the story of him weeping over the city. His heart is broken for the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it. There's the the account of him giving a preview, Matthew 24, of the future. He gives a sneak peek into the future, and most of that future that he gave us the peek into, it hasn't yet unfolded. It's still future even from our perspective. The Last Supper, 
Obviously, in that last week, there's his high priestly prayer. Part of that prayer and the way I look at his high priestly prayer has changed the way I think about everything. It happened in that last week. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's the praying in the garden. There's the failure by his friends. There's the betrayal by his friends. There's his arrest. There are the seven kangaroo courts, the trials before Herod and Pilate and back to Herod and back to Pilate. Seven times. There's the humiliation and the beating and the torture. There's the denial by his closest of friends. Even while he's looking directly at them. There's the suicide of Judas. There's the cross and the crucifixion and the seven sayings from the cross. And the lights go out on that week, that eventful week. The lights go out on it. As he cries out from the cross, it is finished. I don't think there are three words that are more pregnant and more full of meaning than those words, his last, it is finished. And all of that takes place the last week. And the only thing that's left to do as that week is literally ticking to a close, in the remaining few moments, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. What a, what a jam-packed week. And you know how it all began? Of course you do. He enters the city for the last time, and even his entrance is a miracle as he tells his followers, Go into the nearest village, the little town of Bethany, where he had caused Lazarus to rise from the dead. Go into that familiar little town, and somewhere in that burg you will find a donkey tied up that doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to you. In fact, you won't know the people it belongs to, but as you begin to untie it, you're going to be quizzed, where do you think you're going with that donkey? Just tell them Jesus needs it and they'll let her go. They do, and they do, and he does, ride in on that borrowed donkey. To the acclaim of hundreds, maybe thousands of people that have turned out. This is, he's, he's been away from town for a long time. And the appetite for Jesus is great. Unfortunately, if you just flip ahead a couple of pages, a few days... A number of those people in that crowd that are welcoming and waving the palm branches and crying out for him to look at them even as they praise him and exalt him and shout Hosanna, which means God, save. A number of those same people will also be in the crowd a few days later and cry, crucify him. What fickle people we are. That's how he enters the city and, and, and his Critics are in rare form that day as they see, as they see all of these people welcoming Jesus in and praising him and using that secret God talk code, Hosanna, God saves. In other words, we think you're God. And they're offended, the critics are, the leaders are, and they criticize Jesus and they say, how can you let your people, your followers, say something so outrageous? And Jesus says, let me tell you something. Not only am I going to shut them down, 
But even if I did shut them down, what they're saying is so urgent to be said. The cosmos is so full needing it to be said that if I tell them to stop, the rocks under your feet, the big ones and the little ones, will cry out and say the same thing that they're saying about me now. Hmm. And then he moves into the temple and he clears it out and he makes space. That's how it all starts. That's how Holy Week begins. It begins with a welcoming party. You can follow this story in all four of the Gospels. In fact, I think it would be a good exercise for you. I challenge you. I give you this assignment this week to pick one of the Gospels or pick all four and read the story of that last week. But as he enters in in the Gospel of Matthew, the 21st chapter, along about the 10th verse, it says, When he entered Jerusalem last time, the whole city was stirred, not just those that were in the welcoming party, not this, just the kids that were running along and chanting his name, but the whole city now is stirred, and they ask, who is this? And the crowds answered them, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is him. It's a welcoming party that gets this week off to a start, this week that is so carefully choreographed. You know, about 22 years from this date, him entering the city, the Apostle Paul will stand on Mars Hill in Athens, the Acropolis, that place where all of the learned and all of the wise have come and are still coming. And Dr. Luke, the careful historian in the book of Acts, will record it this way. He will say, this is a city full of people whose ears itch to hear something new. And when they hear about Paul, the brain trust will invite him to come to Mars Hill and to stand before the great Parthenon and tell what he knows, and he will talk about what he knows, and he will tell them, as I walked in today, I saw statues and idols, and I saw markers to all kinds of gods from all kinds of places. And I found one that you put up, that you labeled to an unknown, the unknown God, the, the God that they might have missed by accident. He said, I'm here to talk to you about that God that you've missed the unknown God. And he says, in that God, you live and move and have your being. God is the atmosphere that surrounds us. Do you realize that everybody that is on this planet, that has ever been on this planet, every single soul, whether they've turned to him or ignored him, every single soul had its beginning in the life of the Trinity of God. That everybody is an expression of the Father's love for the Son. That's why we're here. And Paul will say, in him you live and move and have your being, that there is no other like this God. He comes to you. 
this God that under whom there is no other name by which we can be saved. That he's come to us because you need him. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. And the hosannas and the palm branches and all the rest. He comes to us because we need him. And he does for you and me what nobody else can do when he comes. He comes because you need him to correct you. Anybody here ever had even a day or half a day or a quarter of a day or an hour in the day or five minutes in a day where you've done everything right? Not yet. We need somebody to correct us, but correction is something we have difficulty accepting. That's why Jesus comes into the temple. First thing he does when he comes in on that day is he heads straight for the house of God. And he looks around, and his heart is grieved by what he sees because everywhere he looks, it's pollution. They've taken the temple, and they've turned it into a place of of raw consumerism. What can I buy? What can I sell? What can I taste? What can I touch? How can I make money off this? It's capitalism at its worst. And it grieves the heart of Christ. And you know the story. He fashions a whip. And he begins to take the tables and turn them over. And he begins to use that whip against those that have defiled and polluted that place. And turned it into something it was never intended to be. The church has gone in for marketing, and he's not happy about what he sees there. And so he tears the place up. There's a rage that is driving him, but it's the right kind. And he throws them out, and there's more than one of those crooked merchants that day that experienced the foot of the Son of God on their rear end. As he drove them out of that place with a fury that alarmed even his friends. And they said, we've never seen zeal like this in God's house. And then what does he do next after he's cleared the place? There's space now to operate. And you read it yourself, he begins to heal and fix. He begins to do the miraculous in that place that a few minutes before was a place of greed because now he's got space to move. He heals and fixes. And that's what prayer is, isn't it? People can give you all kind of very airy definitions about what is prayer. And they can give you all kind of steps how to pray, but here's what prayer is. It's just giving Jesus room to move. It's giving him space to do what he does. That's what happens when you pray. And when he's got space, miracles happen. But you need Jesus to come and correct, just like they needed Jesus to come and correct that eyesore in the temple. We need him to correct, and that's why he comes. But you need him even when you don't know you need him. That very night, the first night that he's in town, he will will go back outside of town. It's too hot for him to stay there. 
And so he goes back out and he spends time outside of town at night, safer. And that very first evening, he will sit on a hillside overlooking the city and he will begin to weep. The book of Hebrews says, and this may have been one of those times, the book of Hebrews says that when Jesus would pray, he could be heard for his loud weeping. And he weeps on the hillside over the city. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers the chickens under the wings. Isn't it funny that the God of the universe, when he wants to let us get the deepest look inside his very heart, he uses a feminine picture. And then he goes on to say prophetically, Jerusalem, I can see that the day will come when they will build siege ramps up to your mighty walls. And an ugly enemy will get into you and it will devastate you. It will slaughter you. It will dash your baby's head against a rock. And that's exactly what the Romans did in 70 A.D. They completely leveled it, and Jesus on that day prophetically weeps that. He says, the day will come when they will not leave one stone upon another. And when the Roman legions moved in, that's exactly what they did. They leveled the place. To the point that for centuries there was nothing for the Jewish people returning to their homeland to call their own. Until not long ago, the archaeologists, they found the thing that we call the Wailing Wall. That's a part of the original temple that was left, but it was below ground. That's the foundation. So when you see people gathering there, praying before that relic of the temple, that's all that was left because Jesus' word was true. They didn't leave one stone above ground standing upon another. You had to look underground to find it. And he weeps over them. They don't know what danger they are in. They don't know how vulnerable they are. They don't know that it's the case that Paul will describe later on, that they are in the clutches of the enemy. They are in the domain of darkness. And they don't even know. They don't even know that they need Jesus, but they need Jesus. And when Jesus comes, He comes because you need Him even when you don't know you need Him. You need Him when things are good. As Jesus enters the city, there will be a scene that just galls His critics. It will be children dancing before Him. And crying out the words that they've heard the adults say in their own little voices. They're crying out, Hosanna, God save, blessed be the name of the Lord. And just like we watch kids come to this altar and experience the presence of God, kids that day experience the presence of Jesus and it caused them to sing and to laugh and to dance. And the critics and the list makers came against that as well. Jesus, shut those kids up. 
Why would anybody ever try and shut up a happy child? Jesus indicates he's not going to do it. But he tells them, haven't you ever read the Scripture? And this really sent them. Haven't you ever read the Scripture that says, out of the mouth of children will come praise for me? We need Him when things are good. Those dancing, happy children, it was good for them. They needed Him then. And you need Him when things are bad. You ever have things go bad? Of course you have. Maybe things aren't really good right now. For me, I was driving along the other day and I was thinking right now is a good time for me. But maybe it's not a good time for you. And you need him when things are bad. They they will fail him. His closest friends and confidants, his, his people that he's poured his life into, that he has ate with and slept next to, that, that he has walked with and shared life with and shared his heart with. They will fail him when he needs them most. As the mob is coming to arrest him in the place of prayer. I woke up this morning and saw a news report that some hate-filled people blew up a church in Egypt on Palm Sunday. A full church. They blew it up. In the place of prayer, the ugliness took place. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the place of prayer, the mob will come and Jesus needs his friends and followers to watch with him and for him, but they fail him when he needs them most. They leave him in the garden, but he never leaves them. And you need Jesus when things are bad. He'll never leave you, not even when things are bad. In fact, you could make a case that that's when he comes closest. You know, I've made some decisions in my own life, for my own life, about how I want to spend whatever time I've got left. Maybe it's because Blanca and I have had a big birthday here. She's quite a lot older than me. She had hers last month. I'm going to have mine this month. In fact, she's so much older than me that I can't hang around with her anymore. We just don't communicate. It's a generational thing. But no, maybe because of birthday, I don't know. But I made some decisions about how I will spend the rest of my life. For as long as I can... I hope I can continue to do what I'm doing here today. I hope I can continue to be a shepherd. I, and I hope I can continue it in this church. I hope you'll have me until I do something really stupid, and then you might be justified in throwing me out. But, but that's my hope, to continue doing this. But there's some other things that I've decided that I will spend my life doing, and I, and I have begun to do that with intention. Uh, one of them is I think it's important for me to spend time 
defending the most vulnerable people in our society, and that's the unborn. And so I've decided to spend a lot of my effort in helping the, the pregnancy center because I think it's important. I think it's easy to talk about how valuable life is, but it's like I tell my boxers, don't tell me, show me. Don't tell me, show me. Show me what you can do. And I think it's important to show what you think is important. So that's one thing. Another thing that I think is important is the unity that needs to be seen in the body of Christ in our city. And so I have given some of my time and will continue to a thing called the Kern Leadership Alliance. In fact, the Convoy of Hope effort that we will do at the end of this month on the 29th, and I hope you'll be a part of that, is an outgrowth of that. How many remember 13 years ago the Franklin Graham Crusade? Well, that was a multi-church effort, and it was great. And the greatest part of it was behind the scenes. You didn't see it. It was all of the church leaders, how we just appreciated each other and worked together. Kind of a first for our city, and we liked it so much that we said, let's keep this going, and formed a thing called the Kern Leadership Alliance. And the Convoy of Hope is the latest thing that we're doing together. And I think that's important, that the world sees the church working together as the body of Christ and being the church. And so that's something I want to give some time to. Most of you know I give time to the Sheriff's Activity League, to the boxing program. That's important to me as well. Because there's a segment of our kid population that is super at risk. And don't ask me why it's the craziest thing in the world, but they respond to that. And there they learn character and skills and discipline and the sheriff's department has given me free hand and there are scriptures on the walls and I talk about Christ. And a number of those kids come to our programs on Wednesday as well. I think that's important. I think that's important because those are kids that typically get overlooked. So I want to spend time with that. The Indian Friendship Center that we started a few years ago with some other friends. Not a burden on our church. We've gotten other churches to come in on it. And all day long, people from India are coming in there and they're learning English and they're getting immigration help, but they're learning about Jesus Christ. Just last week I was there and I was able to, to pray with a man, a Sikh man. He asked for prayer for his wife who has cancer in the belly. And he said very specifically in his new English that he's learning, I want you to pray and, and have Jesus in the prayer. Because he realized that the way he was praying, it wasn't working. So let's try Jesus. Jesus touched his wife, by the way. That same day, there was an RN there, a Sikh lady who helps in the center, and she asked for prayer for her back. We prayed, and God blessed her and healed her back. We prayed in the name of Jesus that day, too. So great things are happening. And these are things that I want to give some of my life to. Now, this last week, I bring it up because in an interesting sort of way, a couple of those two worlds collided last week. They came together. When I got a call from the pregnancy center, and they said, we have a dilemma. Can you help us? We have a young girl here, an Indian girl, a Sikh girl. And she has come in for testing, an ultrasound, 
And we have confirmed what she kind of thought. She is, in fact, pregnant. And I said, well, does she want to save the baby? Is, is she abortion-minded or what they call abortion-vulnerable? Or is she abortion-determined? She comes in saying, just confirm, because I want to get rid of this pregnancy. They said, no, that's not the issue. She is more than happy to keep the baby. The issue is that she is part of an arranged marriage by her family and another family. She is engaged to another to an Indian young man, and she's pregnant by a boyfriend. Now, she was sitting down there terrified. I, I can't imagine the courage it took her to go into the place to begin with, but she is terrified because if her family finds out that she has violated that marriage before it's ever taken place, the arranged marriage, she will be completely cut off. She will have no more family. And there are other things that could also happen, even violence. And so she is terrified to the very core of her being. And they called and said, what can we do? So I put her in touch with some people, Indian people that we have led to Christ who are grounded and discipled. And they began to work with her and assured her and showed her a path forward and just to end of the story, she's going to marry the boyfriend whom she really does love, not the arranged marriage whom she doesn't love. And the arranged marriage was only because she's already a citizen and they wanted to use that to get the young man here. And so it's going to turn out all right. How many know that God takes bad circumstances, even our dumb mistakes where we shoot ourselves in the foot, and he can make something good out of it? I wouldn't give you the time of day for a God that could only use good material. Our God can use bad material and make something very beautiful come out of it. And he did. He did. But as we worked with that young lady and the fear began to subside, I began to realize that she had walked in that place that is dedicated to Jesus Christ, where he lives every day through his people. She had walked in that place and had found herself. She thought she was just going for a pregnancy exam. She found herself surrounded by caring people who had a solution, and they had a solution because they were people in whom Christ is living right now. So what that means is that Jesus Christ, in the form of that place and those people, that Jesus Christ came to her. Just like on that day, centuries ago, he came into the city, he came to that young lady at the point of her distress, at her lowest moment when she is terrified and cannot see a way forward. Jesus Christ came to her. <laughs> you see, the gospel is not that one day one day you will be with Jesus. That is a butchered version of the gospel. But the true gospel, the life-giving gospel, the genuine good news gospel is that he is with us now. Now, you see. And it gets even better than that. And we'll touch on it on Wednesday, in fact, 
Because in that little letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about what we have put on. He says, do you realize that God has not clothed you with cloth, not even fur or skin, but he has clothed you with himself. That he put himself on you. (laughs) So when Jesus Christ comes to you, that is the gospel. He is with us now and he is so close that he clothes us with nothing less than God himself. You can say hallelujah, but I would say wow. That's the kind of God we have that comes to us. That doesn't wait till we come to Him. He comes to us. Again, the Apostle will say that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, no guarantee that we would turn in His direction at all, Christ died for us. He died for us. While we were yet sinners, he comes to us in our mess. And he comes to us because he's what we need. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.